Welcome to Scale Her Up, the female entrepreneur show with me, Brenda Hector. I'm a business growth specialist helping business owners to develop themselves and grow their businesses so they can achieve their goals and enjoy the lifestyle they dream of. I'm also on a mission to revolutionise the entrepreneurial landscape for women in business. In every podcast episode, I interview someone who has an inspiring story or some great advice for women aiming to start or scale their businesses. If you're new to the show, take a moment to subscribe and please check out the previous ones after listening to this. We've got an awesome community on Facebook. Just search for Scale Her Up and join in. This episode of the podcast is part one of an interview with Anne Johnson. Anne is the founder and director of family business Blaze Manufacturing Solutions based in Lawrence Kirk, Aberdeenshire. Anne started the business with her husband and now running a very successful business with their sons also. Welcome to the show, Anne. Really lovely to have you here. Do you want to talk me through your your journey, how you got into business? And Yeah, so originally I'm obviously from Manchester. I'm not from here. My husband's from Manchester as well. I dropped out of my A-levels because I was always on the bus going to the college. There you go. Uh, so instead of being in lessons, because the school couldn't deliver the topics that I was supposed to do. But anyway, so you start off your career and you think, I dropped out of A-levels. So I ended up doing an apprenticeship in printing. So I am your hardcore printer's apprentice. So think of Solgat, NGA. I am the original uh, trade union person the big supporter of trade unions, which you will, it, that's a really rare thing, but that's because that's how I grew up in business, as it were. Worked for the newspapers, daily deadlines, loved it. Very hard industry to work in as a woman. I think oil and gas is bad. You should try working on a newspaper in Manchester. First of the new wave of uh, computer typesetters rather than the old ink locks. So basically everybody hates you. So the guys hate you because you're taking the jobs of the older guys and everybody else hates you because you're a woman and you're young. So it was there that I learned, I made the equation of the more hours you work, the more money you make. So, and there were no rules with NGA. You could, you could work on, at one stage I was working on all day on a Tuesday in Manchester, all Tuesday night in Liverpool, and then all Wednesday in Manchester again. At 18, you can do that. At 51, you can. <laughs> so you do well financially, but how would have got a job up here? And so I was going to transfer to the PMJ, transfer unions, which was a big deal because I was NGA through and through. And uh, I was going to join SOGA and everybody said, oh, don't do it. And I came up and there was a massive strike. So I couldn't get a job. So I didn't have a job. And that's when you realise that you are what your job is. You know, I was a... I was a typesetter. I couldn't work in an office. I had no idea about filing or anything. And everybody thinks you can because you're a woman. So I did some temping jobs in Aberdeen. I ended up eventually at Brit Oil, which was sold. So they offered me a job, but uh, but they were making everybody redundant at the time. And then I had children. And suddenly you're having children. You're off for five years and you're not anything because I'm not a printer's apprentice anymore, not a typesetter. I wasn't very good at the office stuff. So what are you? 
after that ended up at Conical Phillips and worked my way up because I have an utter passion for working with other people. I love other people. I do. I need other people. I'm not a solitary person. I have an office on my own here at Blaze, but generally the doors open and everybody just mills in and out the whole time. I appreciate though other people do like some peace and quiet. I don't. I like other people's interaction. So I ended up at Conical Phillips. My husband very sadly had uh, had cancer very seriously and we'd gone through a difficult time. And he got himself a, a job at Tyco. He was the general manager of fire safety. And then he left and became a contractor and got bored. And that's how Blaze started. So he was really bored as a highly paid contractor, a ridiculous amount of money he used to earn. And we were pretty bankrupt at the time because he'd been very poorly. So he set up Blaze. He set it up in our summer house, which we still own, and with his mate. And I was nothing to do with it right at the start, in name only. And as it evolved, I got more involved. So the first job they ever did was £1.1 million. And that's where I always talk about it's who you are. It's not what you know. So it's your reputation. And Howard had a great reputation around the world and it was a job in India so we did this job our son got involved because he was leaving school and didn't know what to do so he came and worked for Blaze he's still here all those years later he's now 30 no we won't let him leave because we love him I love him so much and then the other son came along because we did you know it, it's it was a family business by then it had evolved so he had to work here and he's at Jamie's the older one he is head of logistics and operations and Andrew's head of uh, R&D. So it's very much a family business. All four of us are here. That I would say is the best thing about a family business is working with your kids, although they're not kids, they're actually adults. You spend all day together. I'm listening to your story and you know I'm thinking lots of people will resonate with your story before the business, you know, working hard and learning lots, but being challenged as well and then the the bit you know when you were when you were just a mum for lots of us that's not fulfilling enough although you know it's awesome to be to be a mother and have have these children and you've obviously brought them up to come together to all be working working together so I think that's a really just just your your backstory before we even get to Blaze is is something that lots of us can probably relate to having somebody that you're married to when you're 24 years old you've got two kids Andrew would have been Andrew would have been about 18 months old Jamie would have been just under three and you discover your husband has cancer and you have no you have no family here because they're all in Manchester and we just moved house seven days before we lived on a derelict farm but we were we had a really good income so the deal was we would do the farm up quickly and life would be great and obviously, when you have cancer, it's not the cancer that's the problem, or it wasn't for us. I shouldn't say that as a sweeping statement because everybody's story is different. But for us, it wasn't the cancer that was the problem because we had this amazing thing called the NHS and Nine Wells in Dundee, and he had an amazing oncologist. And they had that. They were, they were taking care of that. And Howard said he felt like he was on a conveyor belt and they knew what they were going to do and it was all going to be fine. It wasn't fine, unfortunately, because halfway through they realised the treatment wasn't working and he then had to have all the treatment again, which was really difficult. But when you're 24 years old and your mum's in Manchester and you have nobody, 
I have no idea how I got through that. No idea. Because financially we were ruined. Because I didn't work because I was off with the kids. Howard was Howard wasn't um he didn't have a staff job, he was a subcontractor. And there was at the time nobody to help you. There was no Macmillan or they didn't exist. There was a there was a thing called backup. This is going back 25, 30 years. So there was a thing called backup. And they got us funding for £34 to help with the car parking, which was a fortune. Very dark times for all those reasons. So I sympathise. And then when you... He wasn't supposed to recover because we didn't think he was going to recover because it was too bad. And then he did recover. And then you have a nervous breakdown because suddenly you don't know why you're feeling like this because everything's okay because he's survived. But nobody tells you that you've got every right to be really, really angry with the world and then you have mental health issues because of that. And that's all the makeup of the person. That's that's all. It's just a, it's just a, another step along the journey that we've taken. And Howard's fine. Howard is absolutely fine. He sort of says, oh, it was it was years ago. And he has a, he had a little flurry, he calls it, of uh, cancer about uh, seven years ago when he had thyroid cancer. He doesn't even count that as cancer because he didn't have any chemotherapy because he's had too much in his life. And cancer treatment's very different now. But at the time, it was pretty brutal, pretty brutal times. So when he set up Blaze, I thought, really, really? Because I didn't want him to leave the staff job because obviously it was, uh, you know, you have sick pay and death in service and all those things and you're a family. I was working at Conical Phillips. I loved it. I loved the people I worked with. I had great bosses as well, really nice bosses. And in Blaze, we've, we have adopted some of the things from some of the bosses. I had a lady boss called Isabel who was all about trust. So Isabel didn't care you know, what hours you worked, it was about what you produced and she could trust you to, I want you to do this and you did it. And that's how we are here. Because if somebody trusts you, if you feel trusted, that is a wonderful thing. It's very freeing. Somebody's sort of saying, well, you, you're seven minutes late every day. That's not really a trust thing. You know, you've clearly got something going on in your life, which means you can't get in. Unless you're coming in at like, some ridiculous hour and I get that completely so that's how that's how Blaze started because Howard was bored with this subcontract company set up in the in the garden shed I loved Conical Phillips because they had Starbucks and it was a really nice working environment I had my own desk but I was amongst friends and I had friends and it was the, probably the first time in life where I had a job that I didn't feel stressed because I knew what I was doing. I did data retention and I knew what I was doing and I was supported. So that's great. But as Blaze grew and grew and grew, and we had exponential growth year on year. You know, we went from hundreds of thousands to like 3.2 million. Then the next year was 7.6. And then the next year was 13.4. And then the year after that was 18.6. It became obvious that I would have to leave Conical Phillips and go to Blaze full time. I'd been working there for ages in the evenings and at weekends doing the accounts. I have no, no formal training in accounts, nothing. I had to learn on the hoof because our bookkeeper had a car accident and just never came in again because she was suing the, she was suing the person that hit her. 
and it was just a case of I had to learn how to do it. So I just learned how to do it. You can learn anything. Anybody can do it. Genuinely, anybody can do it. You just have to learn the rules because suddenly, if you have to do it, just get on and do it. So I became full-time at Blaze and that was a baptism of fire because that's working with your husband and working with all your husband's friends who think he's some kind of a god. So most people that work at Blaze have worked for Howard in the past, which is because he's a very good engineer, very, very good engineer. And they wanted to work with him again. So people started to come and work at Blaze, phenomenal people. And I could never understand why anybody would give up what I would call a proper job and take a risk on Blaze because I never saw it as like a substantial business. So even when we turned over 18 million, I mean, that was that was quite the year, let me tell you. But it was only two or three massive projects. And the people that we have are very capable. But when I first arrived, they just knew me as Howie's wife. I was Howie's wife. And Howie's wife's come to work at Blaze now. So did you but, Did you have to work harder to prove yourself? Oh, <laughs> they were brutal. <laughs> they were brutal. So I went to see a business coach. It was so bad. I went to see a business coach and she's called Sue Prentice and she's amazing. I would recommend anybody to go to a business coach, even if you only go twice or once. It'll set you on your heels. No, I genuinely, genu- I genuinely, genuinely say this because I only saw, I saw Sue probably two, maybe three times, completely life-changing. So what she taught me was how to ask something, somebody to do something. Because I'd always been part of the team, I'd never been a leader. And suddenly I was a leader, but without the credentials or the reputation, because I'd never done it. you got to start somewhere. So she said to me, when you ask somebody to do something, you ask them to do it, you set a time, let's check in at four o'clock and we'll just go over. We'll just go over it, meaning they will have to have done it. So you're asking it in a gentle way because you can't go from all friends, friends to really strict. There's a middle ground you have to go and then you walk away straight away. You do not get into a conversation because you know that thing where you go and if you can do that by four o'clock, that'd be great. Just if you've got time because I'm not really, you know, and you start to give them reasons why they won't do it. And you walk away and she said, and you physically turn and you walk away. Best advice ever. Life changing. And then you start to build the respect of people because you respect them. You're friendly to them. But at the same time, you've got to lead the business as well. So that was years. But we were always in porter cabins. We were always in porter cabins and things. We were, all, we were on the farm for years. So we were in the summer house. Then we were in uh, the Bothy, which we extended. Happy, happy days dogs all over the place you know that really wonderful and I have you know the people that were in us at the Bothy are still with us today most of them and we still talk about the days on a Friday we'd open all the doors and we'd have you know we'd have the dogs under the desks and it was just great it was just really happy days and I look back and think they were quite stress-free but they weren't because at that time you're dealing with, you know, organising insurance for a company that's grown through the roof and everybody wants to talk to you suddenly, which is very strange. And then we were approached to be bought. So um, we were going through that for a lot, a huge amount of money, huge amount. We were going to be the 60th richest people in Scotland. My friend looked it up, which I thought was really funny. I thought the whole thing was very funny. I mean, I ended up walking away from it. Unfortunately, the downturn came and the downturn was 
hard, hard, hard. So that was about four and a half years ago. So we went from turning over 18 and a half million to about three because we cliff edged because we did uh, large scale capital projects. Bizarrely, at the same time, we were contacted by number 10 to go to number 10. I thought it was a joke. It wasn't a joke. And the stock exchange. And so we went and it was, um, I was not in a good place, shall we say, because I was very worried financially for the business. Because when you do forecasting, you know, in three months time, you're not going to have any money. So it's not a healthy thing, forecasting. (laughs) Sometimes we do it because we have to do it as a business. But you know when really grim times are coming. And we went to London and we stood in, we stood in um, number 10. And the head of the stock exchange, who was a French guy, really lovely French guy, said, we thought we'd sneaked into the top 1,000, by the way. We were actually in the top 10 companies in the UK. We thought it was all a hideous mistake, but it wasn't. And it was based on the 18.5 million turnover which we were no longer doing because we'd hit the downturn. So he was talking about businesses in the northeast of Scotland and particularly in Aberdeen and how they were the powerhouse of the UK and telling all the other businesses, you need to look to these guys because you look down your nose at these people who work in oil and gas, but they're the engineers. They're like the industrial revolution. And he talked about the second industrial revolution and all things like that. I was floored by this because I thought we were the minions there we were the ones that were like the invited guests there were about 30 companies there at the time and I just thought this is like it really messes with your head as well because you think we're rubbish because we're doing really badly but then I started to meet people that were that through the stock exchange because we joined their program which was excellent it's called the elite program I, I couldn't recommend that enough fabulous we started to meet people who we were who were really rich, really rich business people who you know, Dragon's Dens participants, you know, the dragons themselves, very famous business people who you think mega rich. And they would tell their story at um, these sessions. And that's when you realize that the guy, Moonpig, the Moonpig guy, Nick Jenkins, who is fabulous and lovely, he's just like you and me. In fact, we're probably better at business than he is because he just told a story about he almost like ran ran along the road tripping and falling and this was the business and how he did it and how he just thought I, I quite like writing on cards you know to personalize them and why could I not have this as a business and then he was a lazy student so he was at home all day and it was when channel four started and he noticed the adverts on the television and he thought I wonder how much that is and he did that but his key turnaround was when Funky Pigeon started up and they were the major competitor and their marketing team spelt the word pigeon wrong. They put a D in it. So he had a, he had a mate from university write an algorithm that every time you put in the word pigeon with a D, it directed them to, to his website. That's how, that's, and it was the most wonderful story and the tale of him, you know, getting money out of drunk people at bars to invest in his company and when they had no money. And that, that business, I think that business sold for one, two, three, which was 123 million. Now he won't have got all that money because along the way he had to give away a lot of equity. And but with every talk you had and every session you had, you learn a really major story. And um, it, it's just the most phenomenal project, the elite program. And, you know, you meet amazing people and then you realize that most business people have been bankrupt at least once, once or twice, and there is no shame in it. 
Whereas you feel there's a huge shame because it's failure. There is no shame. If you call it, if you say, do you know what, I'm going to shut this down, that's you taking control of it. And that, that would be my message today, actually, is it's really tough times. It's going to get really ugly. If you think you're not going to do well, stop fighting and do something else because all you're doing is making it worse. So I have a friend who has a business who I wish would shut that business because at the minute, they've only lost about three and a half thousand pounds. Every month, they're losing more money. And it's, it's irretrievable. This particular business, which I can't speak about, is irretrievable. It's just not going to happen. And I keep saying to them, stop this, go and do something else. It's knowing when to stop. And that was another lesson we learned at the Stock Exchange, know when to call it. And we had loads of examples of companies that hadn't called it and lost personal wealth because you fund everything yourself, don't you? You guarantee everything. Your mortgage is generally up. Your house is generally up. You're not on a level playing field. When we go and do a, a warranty bond, we have to put it against their house. If it's a company that's not owned by people, it's owned by perhaps a board or a pension scheme, you don't have to do that. You just borrow it against the assets. So it's not a level playing field when you get bigger. The other thing that I, I was questioned about at Holyrood was, why do you people, and that's how they phrased it, why do you people always sell out as soon as you hit the 10 million turnover? And I said that because they want more companies to go on, expand and, you know, and be privately owned and turn over hundreds of millions. And I said, by the time you've turned over 10 million, you are exhausted because you've given everything. Absolutely. Your whole family has given everything as well to get to that point. And also, you're not wealthy at that point because you don't pay yourself a huge salary. You generally pay dividends. And I think people have got this concept of all business owners take out hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds every year. It's not true. You make your money when you sell your business because that's how Britain has made that model. And that's why so many people are losing out just now in the coronavirus as well. It's terribly, terribly sad. Now, is there any aspect you want me to talk about? Yeah, I mean, that... That's unreal. There's so many, so many great things that you've gone through there. I guess lot, lots of us focus on the on the challenges that we face as a woman in business. But I'm sure there's a flip side to that. What are the advantages that we've got being a woman in business? <laughs> um, it depends what circle you're in. It really does. We had a job in a shipyard and which was which was very challenging. And it was in it was in Germany. And when it gets really bad, that's when I go because they have absolutely no idea how to deal with a woman. Absolutely not. Zero. Absolutely not. They're just like, who the hell is this? It can work to your favour because you can ask the daft questions. They expect that anyway. So uh, I'm doing people down because actually people have been very welcoming. You get, once once you get the confidence in yourself and you hold yourself higher, that's when you'll get the respect of other people. If you go in with the rounded shoulders and the head down, that's how they'll treat you. So you have to be bolder than everybody else and, a, and you have to be recognized to have a voice and you have to have a voice and you have to stand by it. So I've mentioned the stock exchange. At the stock exchange, that's 20 companies sign up to the program and you meet every six weeks down in London. And you, when you ask a question, you better be damn sure of your question because you've got 19 companies that will attack you. And the reason for that is these companies are 
hungry for investment. They're generally pre-revenue and they want to stand out. So they think you've asked a daft question. We made one friend on that, on that program. And the friend we made is a guy who owns a business in uh, Aberdeen because we understood each other and everybody else was like finance, you know, fintech. I didn't even know what fintech was at that stage or biomedical. Some amazing people in the class, but really aggressive, really, really, really aggressive, some of them. And you just thought, I said to Howard after the first one, never, ever send me here on my own. These are not our friends. And he said, mm, I've never met people like this. So when you take yourself out of your comfort zone and you go to somewhere else in the UK, the landscape is completely different. Do you know what's been a real asset is my accent. Everybody remembers you. I've got this horrible Mancunian accent. So, you know, people remember you. But also when we diversified out of oil and gas, Everybody assumed we lived in Manchester. Everybody thought we were from the north of England, which we are originally. We've not lived there for 32 years. I've, I've lived here far longer than I ever lived in England. Because as soon as anybody knows you're from this area in Aberdeen, they think you're too expensive. You know, you're at the engineering company's too expensive. So we've got away with, we've got into nuclear, we've got into renewables. Because when you talk, I never actually say I'm from Aberdeen, ever ever, unless somebody specifically asked me, I'll never say I'm from Aberdeen because geographically they can't cope with it. They can't cope, you know, where's Aberdeen again? Oh, where is that? Is it near Edinburgh? Kind of. So just having that slight confusion is really good. Also that most of the organizations I'm a member of are women-led. So the CBI is, is led in Scotland by Tracy Black, who is hilarious she is absolutely hilarious and she is a very very fine economist and head of the cbi but she's very personable uh, i know well we had a, a lady uh, director general in um, london caroline fairburn until very recently and a, a man has taken over now but until then it was a woman in aberdeen we have uh, deirdre mickey who's head of oil and gas uk I told you UK, we've got Colette Cohen, again, great ladies. I try to think, we've got Nicola Sturgeon, haven't we? I suppose you guys. Angela Merkel, Margaret Thatcher. So as a woman, I find women will help other women. I do find that. And I am a massive advocate of that. I meet some pretty terrible people as well, unfortunately, because there are some, I just call them the sharks, there are sharks out there and they're swimming about and they live amongst us. And sometimes they can get close and you don't realise it and then you realise they're a shark. Any any tips for us or for how to spot a shark? Well, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you generally listen to what other people say. You know, other people, I remember there was, um, there was somebody, I don't even know what she said, this is a while ago. My friend said, I've just had a meeting with this woman and she said she was saying really bad things a business friend of hers so she called her out on it so she invited her for coffee and then told her to her face <laughs> that she thought what she'd been hearing was outrageous and she should stop it because if she didn't stop it the world was too small and she was horrified and I don't know why she'd done it I don't actually know what had been said but women will be honest and 
So I, I had this last week, last week. So I know the head of Women Enterprise Scotland very well, Carrie. Carrie's a lovely lady. And Women Enterprise Scotland, they do a lot of the lobbying at Holyrood. And she's she is a terrific advocate for women. And I thought somebody worked for her, sort of loosely worked for her. And I had been asked to phone her to say, you need to, you need to have a word with this person because, you know, it's got out of hand. And I was thinking, how, you know, it's nothing to do with me. It's absolutely. And I thought, but this person is damaging Wes. So I rang her up and we had, we had that common bond as women because straight away you talk about kids, dogs, husbands, holiday, you know, you have a common bond. And then I said to her, look, this is, this is a hard conversation, but you know, I've heard this and I'm just really worried about it. And she just burst out laughing. She said, she doesn't work for us. And so you're over that. But it's the honesty. It's that complete, true honesty of somebody is saying, I, this is really hard for me to say, but I think you need to address this. And this morning I had a conversation with somebody who I don't even know, but I'd heard her speak at something and I thought she was amazing. She called Sally, Sally Cassidy. She's absolutely phenomenal salesperson. And I, I looked at, at LinkedIn and I said, have you, keynote? have you got like half an hour just for a chat? I see you've changed your job. Can we just have a chat? So we've, we had like an hour this morning on the phone, just laughing uh, hilariously at certain things because we had a lot of commonality and it's just about being brave. I would, I would say to anybody, reach out to any other woman or anybody actually, and just say, have you just got 20 minutes for a chat? Because People, I think at the minute, we need to support each other. The mental health thing is a real problem just now. And just having a chat with somebody is so life-affirming and it'll just cheer you up for the rest of the day rather than the bitching and moaning that a lot of people do and then don't do anything about it. I'm going to pause it here for now and you'll be able to listen to the rest of Anne's interview in part two. Thanks for listening to Scale Her Up, the female entrepreneur's show. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and please join our Facebook community at Scale Her Up. Please connect with me, Brenda Hector, on social media and drop me a message to let me know you're enjoying the podcasts or even better, pop a wee review on iTunes. I'm going to finish by reminding you, only one in three UK entrepreneurs are female and men are five times more likely to scale their business to over one million in turnover than women. If we started and scaled our businesses to the same extent as men, it would add 250 billion to the UK economy and provide millions of jobs. Ladies, you can do it and we're going to make a massive difference.